This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by SmartPak. Due to the challenges of modern horse keeping, many horses can benefit from the support of supplements to help them look and feel their best. Every horse is different, so SmartPak has made it easy to create a customized supplement program for your clients. With over 350 supplements available, including a wide range of hoof care products and a team of equine health experts on staff to help choose between them, SmartPak is the smartest place to get your horse what it needs. Visit SmartPak.com or call 1-800-461-8898 to learn more about how SmartPak can help you take great care of your horse today. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. I recently went on a trip to Albuquerque, which gave me the chance to sit down with Walt Taylor. Walt holds a very unique position of being there at the onset and the founding of the American Farriers Association. I think a time in horseshoeing that dramatically changed the industry. Walt's very firm in many of the beliefs and opinions he holds, which made this an interesting conversation. In this episode, we chat about those early years and where he's seen this industry go after his decades under horses. So Walt, tell us how you got into horseshoeing. How did I get into horseshoeing? I've been cowboy crazy when I was born and uh, always was in horses. And when I was in high school, I went to work in a dude ranch in Colorado, My parents of a high school friend. and. Uh, we had 12 horses, or they had 12 horses on rental. It was out in the middle of nowhere, and there weren't any horseshoes around. You know what they say, all flows downhill, and somebody, <laughs> somebody has to do it. And so I started shooting, trimming and shooting those dude horses out of necessity. And, and, and I was not against it at all. I just loved doing it because it was something not many other people would do. You know, there was nobody to teach, there was nobody to ask, there was nobody to, but nothing to do but just tuck in and do it. And obviously, kind of like today, it made a lot of messes. Because there was monkey see, monkey do kind of a thing. But that was 1948, and things have changed since then. Yes. And uh, what part of Colorado was that? There's a little town called Meeker, Colorado. It's in the northwestern part of the state. And it was 52 miles east of there, at the end of the road, in a place called Trapper's Lake. It's a federal wilderness now. It's all closed off except horses and foot travel. Beautiful remote country, real good country. Yeah, that, that's the interesting thing too. Is the I think we're spoiled today, and we're going to get into uh, the founding of the AFA and your work with that. But uh, how difficult it is the like you said monkey see monkey do it, but really that trial and error of trying to teach yourself horseshoeing. You know, what were the resources that you would have just <laughs> watching others? <laughs> well. We had a, a clinic all back here in New Mexico, and a, a young lady asked what kind of nails we used. And I said, whatever nails you can get are the best nails you got. <laughs> and the same way with shoes back then, the old toad and heel bronco diamond shoes were the, the big thing. The Japanese shoes hadn't really started coming in yet. We just got something, whatever you could get, you used, you made work. And it wasn't well done, it was, by today's standards, extraordinarily rough, but so were cars and roads back then too, you know. Yeah. So that was the, the late 40s, early 50s? 1948. Yeah. 48 when I started. All right. And then uh, uh, where, where did you go after that? I just worked around in Colorado and um, I graduated from high school in 1950. And at that time, where I lived in, in that western part of the state, you had, you had a choice of three things you could do for your life. You could stay there in that pocket of poverty and be a cracker like everybody else was. You could go to the army, which a lot of people did, or you could go to college, and I went to college, just to escape that pit <laughs> that, that we lived in. And uh, I got a degree, a bachelor of science degree, and shoeing horses on the side, and something to help get to school, you know. I worked in a sawmill and, a, and shooting horses, worked in the sale yard. Always some way to do with horses. But uh, again, he, nobody would let you see what they were doing. Nobody would give you any advice. Nobody would help you in any way. You just did it, that's all. 
Why was that? I, I've heard that and I've heard it even continue into the years and, and up to and a little bit past the founding of the AFA. Why, why weren't guys willing to share? Every horseshoer, a whole lot like a lot of horseshoers today, are egotists. They think they know it all. And if you find out what my secrets are, what I know, then you're going to steal my customers. So therefore, I'm not going to help you any. And helping you by showing you or, or encouraging you or being a mentor to you means that eventually I'm going to lose my client to you. So everybody's, you know, not pull their shirt around or their coat around them and don't talk to anybody, don't look at anybody, don't let anybody look at them. I've been in a lot of places. You drive in a place where there was a horseshoe working, he just pack up his stuff and leave rather than, rather than let you watch him. And I have to say, even though I was quite young, I did the same thing. You protected yourself from these boogeymen <laughs> going to make you a poor man, you know. It was, it was really a thing. And it wasn't just where I was in Colorado. It was all over the country talking to the old people that I knew after we got in the AFA going pretty much the same everywhere, except on, on the union tracks. They had a little, a little more camaraderie there. So you're continuing on. You always had something else, college with horseshoeing, the sawmill with horseshoeing. Did you, when, at what point did you go full-time with horseshoeing? Oh, it's hard to say. Sometimes it was full-time. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the other thing about that country up there is like all of the West and the mountain country, you know, it's, it's uh, chicken or feathers. You know, you get three days of chicken and you get 10 days of feathers. The weather changes and business changes, but, you know, three months in the summer is about all the time we get because nobody did anything in the wintertime. And if you had to, if you had to do anything in the wintertime, you did it yourself, or at least most people did back then. Uh, I was in one place, there was a one veterinarian and one farrier, and we both starved to death because everybody did their own work just to save money, you know, our times are hard. Well, I didn't really start shooting probably full, full time until the middle 60s. And still in Colorado? Oh, Colorado and Wyoming. Yeah. yeah. And so at that point, had you started thinking about more on the camaraderie or were you still, like you said, packing up your truck and leaving? You didn't trust anybody. Yeah. <laughs> dog eat dog, you know. It's kind of like looking out for the game warden. You know, there's trouble when the game warden showed up. And, <laughs> trouble when another officer showed up. What turned me on to the idea of an association and learning things was in 1969. The New Mexico State University had a continuing education course that they run all over the state, a two-week course in horseshoeing. And it was bad, but I'm telling you, it was the first time that I ever heard about balance is the first time I ever thought about the anatomy of a foot, learn anything other than just picking up a foot, whacking something off and nailing a shoe on. That was all I amounted to before then. You know, holy mackerel, there's something to this after all, you know? And uh, that's what got thinking about putting something together that would get, let people share with each other and learn from each other. And I found that to be exactly the same case in, in the third world when we started training fairs to third world. The idea that you've got, you have men that have been butchering horses' feet for 50 years and they hadn't a clue, they hadn't a clue what that foot was made of or how it worked. It was, it was nothing but a club. They recognized that, you know, you had to keep the club working, but just not the faintest idea. In fact, I don't want to sound like I'm ranting, but I believe that the vast majority of the rank-and-file horseshoers today, June 1st, what is it, 2019, the most they know about foot care and ferry, when they go to a horse, they've learned from someplace, I'm supposed to pick up the foot and maybe say something about it. Then I'm supposed to cut something off of it and maybe nail something onto it. And that's the, all they know about it. I'm convinced, I see it every day here by people who are carrying a piece of paper that say they're certified someplace, one way or the other. Know nothing about what they're doing except to pass the test. But once the test is done, the piece goes on the wall, back to business as usual.
Now, is that young fairs, seasoned fairs, all, all across the board? The, the whole gamut. There's been a tremendous, tremendous uh, improvement in the industry, no question about it. There's some extraordinarily fine horseshoe fairs that have come through the processes, but it's, because, it's in spite of, not because of, I think. The association has done great work. The, the certification has done great things, but it's not the answer. That, that I think is the answer. Yeah. Well, well, let me let me pull back, you know, back to where where you're younger, and you know, what what changed in terms of your understanding? You know, what what training did you eventually get, or what mentors did you come across that let let you move beyond that whack it and tack it stage? That was that was that short course. So even that was just the simple explanations were exactly enough. nothing more than that. Wow, so you'd have gone all that time to 1969? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was no union, there was no association, there was nothing, no place you could go for anything. So you, you either did without or you made it up, you know, yeah. toughed it out. And there were a few schools around that following World War II, you know, there was a great trade school approach, you know, for the returning vets, but I was never exposed to any of it where I lived and worked. There was nothing like that available. And I surely couldn't afford to go off someplace. And I had a family and, you know, couldn't go off and go to school, a school. But even then, what would you learn except what that guy knew? And just because he did it didn't make him extra. There was a great hallowed thing about army horseshoers, you know. Mm-hmm. I knew a few of them later along. They were just as rough as the rest of us. They just had been there, had done that. So, you know, they became like the one-eyed man in the land of the blind. You know, they became the king because they had just a little bit more than the rest of us had. So, you know, you go to that two-week course. What what did you, did you leave and do? What what changed about your practice immediately after that? Knowing what I was working with, knowing what the, the penalty was for making a mistake, knowing what the reward was for doing a good job. Uh, for me personally, not, not, I'm not thinking about the horse, I'm talking about me personally. Learning what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, the parameters of, of what we can do and what we shouldn't be doing based on the science of the horse, or the, yeah, the science, the physiology, the, the uh, everything that makes the horse move, the locomotion, everything. That was never a part of the picture before, never. And I don't think it was for anybody else either. Maybe with some of those farriers uh, it's, that you're talking about, maybe they're listening here. If they, you know, want to take oh, they're their... they're all dead now. <laughs> well, no, no, not, not those farriers, but the farriers you're saying still today, you think the rank and file largely don't have a solid understanding of what they're doing. You know, what, what advice do you have for them? There's a myth, and it's called an apprenticeship. That is a myth in this business, I think. Monkey see, monkey do. The boss is the boss. And you do what the boss tells you to do. If you don't know what the boss tells you to do, you're gone. He says, do it this way. Okay, I'll do it that way. And you may be very good at doing it that way, but all you know is that way. So everybody else then is an adversary that doesn't do it that way. But we're too, we're too locked in to say, hmm, well, maybe there is some justice in that, or maybe there is some good things in that. But we, we can't break out of that shell and put 17 things together. And make 18 the eight newest thing that incorporates all these other things. And that's the problem with most of the horseshoeing schools. You probably remember your first grade teacher. Mm-hmm. Mighty impressionable. You go to horseshoeing schools even worse, I think. The, the guy that runs it, that talks to you, forms you, shapes you, he becomes God. And you very seldom diverge very far from that. I've seen it happen hundreds and thousands of times. Well, so-and-so does it this way, and that's the right way to do it. We've always done it this way, this is the right way to do it. And if you don't believe it, you're gone. So if so, all right, let's say somebody, a young person, or I guess age doesn't necessarily matter, wants to learn the trade, wants to enter the trade and become a farrier. You know, what, what's a five-year plan for education? You know, knowing education is gone through the rest of their life, but just to get started, what would you suggest? You might as well just go do it yourself. You've got a lot of people you can copy now that'll let you copy if you pay them uh, as a teacher or a mentor. But 
get my soapbox out. <laughs> this lack of education, lack of standardized, accredited, recognized education doesn't exist in our shooting business. It doesn't exist. That's what I started, well, it's been now four or five years ago, trying to create Ferrer as a profession, not as a trade, not as a do something for a part-time job, but as a profession, just like a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist or a veterinarian or whatever, a profession. Everybody is trained in the same basic way, the same basic knowledge, the science, the mechanical part of it, and they're trained before they start butchering horses. And then when they go to work, when they finally finish that training course, and it can be whatever indeterminate length of time, whatever it takes to get the job done. Then instead of working 15 years to get to be a good farrier, they can only work maybe three or five years to be a good farrier. We're wasting our, we're wasting our lives where we're going now. You look at the old guys that are really good. There's some really good people. Well, it took me 30 years to get here. Well, hell's bells. How many horses did you cripple? How many owners did you screw over? Why didn't you go to school and get it started right and get 30, 25 years jump on your career? Mm. So if you were going to start a horseshoeing school, what would the ideal curriculum look like? If I knew, I'd probably have done it. <laughs> <laughs> I've done about everything else I can. But we, we, I think, there are two, two things you have to learn to shoe horses. You have to learn a science, and you have to learn an art. And then you have to learn to put them together. And most, most of the... And my perception, at least in most of the horseshoeing schools, is that shooting horses is dangerous, is chancy, insurance is high, you gotta have a lot of it for the horse and the student. So you spend all your time beating on iron. That's cheap and easy. It's very controlled, it's very measurable, and it's not terribly risky. So in, we give enough in the school to learn a little bit about the horse, and then spend about 90% of the rest time beating on iron, making shoes that are nice sometimes, and, but totally extraneous to the process. Because you can buy mostly shoes that, that could be altered to be used to get the job done on the horse. So I would spend a whole lot more time on the horse if I were to start in school, and a whole, whole lot less time in the forge. We're not getting paid for the forge time. We're not getting paid proportionally or, or um, for the crippled horse time, all of the, the, the stuff that vets should be doing. We don't get paid for that. We, we need to learn to do well what needs to be done most. And that ain't making shoes and that ain't shooting crippled horses. Nobody makes a living shooting crippled horses now. Well, maybe half a dozen or five dozen, but not very many people proportionally make, make a living shooting crippled horses. Yet, you go to AFA thing, and I've been to the summit, but probably 90% of the stuff that's talked about are, are particular cases that 95% of the people never see again, mm -hmm. let alone be asked to do a job on so Why are we wasting our gas doing that? Why are we wasting our time making shoes, contests? You know, that's nice for a rodeo or a 100-yard race or a 100-meter race or whatever they call them, but why are we spending all the time doing things that we're never going to do again? for a majority of our career, for the majority of our livelihood. We're thinking and playing up here and we're ignoring or missing the things down here. I, I was exposed to, you remember Catherine Graham? Yeah. I don't know how she ever got in the middle of a deal, but a guy conned her into letting him use her farm in Oxen Hill to have a horseshoe school. I went out there and, oh my, anyway. They were butchering the horses, putting nice looking shoes on them. They were butchering the horses. Every horse went away from their lane, but it had a beautiful shoe on. And you could, you could have a hundred reasons why that shoe was good for the horse, but it wasn't good for the horse. Anyway, I, I spent quite some time with her to try and help her realize that she was not feeding the right side of the equation. You know, and she finally run him off. But, you know, we, we go there and we do things that are non-productive and we call it education and we call it schooling and we call it mentoring. But we're, uh, we're not using the right target, I think, in my view. Yeah.
Yeah. Well, let me jump us back to, to 69 and sort of this, this thing that started getting you thinking about an association. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that two-week course seemed like it was a real wake-up call, and then not just how you work with horses, but working with other farriers. Yeah, you say, gosh, I need too bad a guy after all. You know, he's a pretty, pretty neat guy. He's got something I can learn from, and I can help him. And you think, why didn't this, why didn't this break through that, that bomb shelter <laughs> 25 years ago or 40 years ago, you know? But it just wasn't, it wasn't the way it was. And, and I'll, tell you, I'll tell you why I think, you know, and I may hurt a lot of feeling and I may step on toes, but I, 90% of being a professional person in any, in any profession, in any calling, is being taught, being led to learn to think, clearly not, not just listen, but to think, to make decisions, to make comparative analysis. That's an art, and we don't get it. And 90% of the people who are shooting horses today aren't professional people. They're getting paid, so they're getting paid very well, and professional in that sense, but they're not professionally trained. They've been taught by somebody who's as dumb as this table, but who's skillful, perhaps. And that brings me to a diversion I want to make. The American Ferris Association has spent years doing this, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and not doing that. Because we elect, as officers and leaders and board members, people that ain't got a clue about organization. They don't have a clue about being a professional. They're not professional people. They've never been trained to be professional people. So they do what they're told, and they'll fight you till the last dog is home to, before they'll change because that's the way it is. And most of the, a lot of the people shooting horses today are the same way. You talk to them about professional things, they haven't got a clue. They, well, I get paid, I'm a professional, I'm good, I'm a professional. They very well may be, but they're not professionally trained. Are they? Am I missing something? In the sense that a true professional, a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist or what are recognized as professions. Yeah. They're not trained that way. They're, we are trained to do. And we do. And some of us do it very well. Some of us do it very poorly. But we could all do better if we'd learn to think and make good decisions and, and be professional instead of petty. We'd be a lot further ahead. What are some other aspects of a professional that you think you're maybe missing? Being good people. Pay your bills, pay taxes. Don't see how much money you can stick in your pocket before you go settle up with the tax man. Um, you know, just the way that a person acts, the way that a person talks, the way that a person presents himself or herself are a window. And you can tell what kind of a person that is by these things, I, I, I think, by these manifestations. And if we go through a, a course, let's say, I hate to use that term, but a a formative period where we're taught to be ladies and gentlemen, where we're taught to speak, where we're taught to think, where we're taught to be responsible, where we're taught to be a part of a unit, not just some renegade that does what I want and resists everybody else. We develop a person who, who is well-rounded and who's able to function, relate with other people, and not, not well, I'm, I'm the boss, I'm, I know what it is, this is the way it is. And we don't have many of those people in my view, within this trade. Is it possible to develop more, or do you think it's just an issue with the trade? Uh, always been present in the trade? As long as we lack a common foundation, it ain't going to change. And the only way to get a common foundation is to establish a common training program. Well, let's get there, you know, in the talk of licensing, but I, I want well, to... Licensing ain't a part of it. No, no. Education is. Education. A licensing may come at the end of an educational process, but licensing has nothing to do with anything other than some bureaucracy. The fact is that if you are trained in the art and trained in the science and you can put the two together and you can prove that through examination, third-party examination, not internal examination, then the organization itself or the the legal entity, the state, or whomever, they say, well, if you can do this and you can have a license that will protect your right to do that. 
That's where the license comes in. And it's denied those that can't do that. Open and shut. But it's the end result. It's not the beginning. It's the end. And that's where I gone wrong. Well, let's talk about the, the formation of the AFA. You know, how did that come about? You know, talk is cheap. <laughs> it's really cheap. And, and at this get-together, at uh, this short course, there was a guy who was a high school principal. He was a bulldogger, a professional bulldogger and a high school principal. And he wanted to learn to be a horseshoe until he could earn extra money when he got the rodeo. See? But he was an educated man. He had a degree in education. He understood how things work at this level, not down at the horseman level. There was another guy who was a high school teacher. There was another man, and I can't remember. He was a consultant of some kind, but I, I just can't remember what it was. And we, we talked together that we not only want to attract horseshoers who are like-minded in terms of wanting to know a little bit more about what's what, why is why, but we want to help those who want to increase their skills and their knowledge by the sharing aspect of it, the camaraderie, if you will. So there was kind of those two ideas we were trying to wad together. And uh, they were good helpers. They were, oh, yeah, let's do it. And I said, well, do it. Well, no, you do it. You know. So I did it. You just get, you, you know, you end up with all the balls, whether you want them or not. And uh, you don't want to write a constitution, write a bylaw set, write a procedure, do the nuts and bolts things that, that needed to be done, put, to put feet to prayers and to put pins under some foundation. And they didn't want to do it. But I did. I wanted to do it not because I thought the result would be worthwhile. And they were totally supportive. They were ended up their eyeballs except they didn't want to do the work. <laughs> You know, that's how I usually will go with, with groups, that uh, somebody always emerges. Generally, yeah. yeah. So where, where did you go from there? You're, you know, you're wrapped up writing bylaws and things like that. How did you start recruiting farriers and getting the word out? Well, we had our first meeting, and, and it was quite a diverse group because of this short course nature of the thing. People could stick their toe in the water without a lot of expenditure of time and effort and money to learn what they wanted do the work or not. And uh, so there was a pretty good exposure to a, a wide cross-section of people from the lieutenant colonel down to the guy that worked at the produce company, you know. They each knew somebody else. So after we had our initial organization meeting, we just started putting out co personal contacts with people that we knew that might be interested. Not very many of them were because they didn't know anything about it and didn't know. And, and again, most of them weren't horseshoers either. They were people who had some peripheral relationship, you know, whether it was just an interest or a, a cowboy background or a horse background or, or whatever. So we took a big, big step and we bought a, a one-column inch ad in the Western Horseman. <laughs> and it just said, you know, American Fairs Association. I, I forgot how we even filled an inch. I, I did it, but I don't remember how. Don't remember what it was. Maybe I could find one. I don't know. It was 105 bucks for what seemed like a monumental amount of money, but ran it like every other month. And you know, Western Horseman has a fairly wide circulation van. I don't know if it still does or not. Again, obviously, mostly within the Western venue, you know. And it started to get, we've got a post office box and we get an inquiry. What's this all about? Tell us what's, you know, what's going on. And we had developed, I'd, I'd written up a bunch of, Bumfield or like a press kit. Here you are. And people start biting a little bit. People like Eddie Warrington back up in Delaware and, you know, just getting a little. Yeah. Most of them, though, as in every case, they had their living made. They didn't need anything else. They didn't want anything else. And they said, oh, yeah, good idea. But we said, well, put it out to your students. Goal. Because here were a whole bunch of guys that are being led by their nose without a clue what's going on, told what to do, how to do it, what to think, what not to think. And they were hungry as I was when I went through that little thing because it hadn't been offered before. Here's a chance to learn something more. I really like this. I really want to learn something more. So that they're the ones that, that made up the initial membership was... New guys, probably less than three years, any of them, than 
Well, then when the, some of these, let's call them students, started showing some interest, well, then the, the next level up began to think, well, maybe I'm being threatened here. Maybe I need to think about this. The Bruce Daniels guys, the Buster Conklin guys, uh, that level. Well, you know, there's a saying, I don't know if you ski or not, but yes. skiers breed skiers more than figuratively, and more than physically. The skiers go where skiers are. And, and horseshoers began to say, well, there must be something going on there because all these horseshoers are talking about it or thinking about it. So, you know, it began to kind of like dragging a magnet through the filings, you know, it began to gather people who were interested, the younger people that needed help. The people that were kind of on the edge of either going ahead or falling by the wayside. And some of them came on enough to, enough to keep us interested anyway, to keep, yeah. keep going. And once, once you build these relationships, how, how would you reach out and chat with them? Just by correspondence. Yeah. We didn't have any money for telephones. And I, I put an awful lot of my own money into it, as you might expect. And I, but I couldn't afford to call a lot of people. We didn't have cell phones. So it was, it was pretty... Pretty difficult for a long time. Yeah, but you were seeing the results. You, you'd seen, you were seeing the results of more yeah. and more people. Yeah. When did you take it to the next level? Nineteen seventy-seven. Uh, at, at the time we were mucking around getting started, there was an association in, in Illinois, the Illinois Licensed Horseshoers Association, but it was strictly for the union tracks. It, it, I shouldn't say strictly, but that's its focus was. Training farriers to pass the IUJH test to be able to work on the racetracks in Illinois. Michigan had an association, but it was allied with with the Illinois thing because of the proximity there. But they had a different slant of things, again, aimed towards being able to be licensed on the track. So we went and had some joint meetings, or we called them conventions, but a joint business meeting with them. They were having a have you been to the Michigan Association? Yeah, livestock video. It's been going forever, and it's a dang good yeah. outfit. But we went there and, and you know threw in for the weekend. We furnished some speakers and some demonstrators, and they did the same thing. And, you know, we, we met like this instead of like that. You know, we met as peers, and it worked like a charm. Well, then I went down to Georgia and I went to California and went up in the Northeast and tried to get people thinking about this kind of a thing. And we, we got enough interest, I guess you'd say, that they said, well, let's try something here. Let's try something there. It was in, in Denver, Colorado, in Lakewood. We got some people that, people, there was a hundred and some people that came. They rode the bus from Kentucky, they hitchhiked from Washington State. We had a grand time, just just a bunch of us, you know, and had, had a little, in a hotel, in a little hotel, laid out some tables. and. Couple of lectures and talks. I shouldn't say lectures. Bill Pay came with his tub of stuff, and you know it gave us. So then when we went to California, said, "Let's step it up one level." And we kept piddling along until 1979. The Western States Association at that time was made up of the California Farriers Association, the California State Horseshoers Association, and the Western States. So there were three of them in just California. So we had a meeting out there and I talked them into going together. Let's have a joint meeting and we'll come to, to Fresno in 77. And we had a two day convention and Dr. Beeman came and did his form to function stuff. And demonstrators, not just horseshoers, but horsemen, uh, different disciplines and what. And it went down a treat. It just went down a treat. There's a little uh, trade show. And it was great. It just really was good. They had the first contest at that time. And uh, the next year, I then went to Jackson, Mississippi, in 1980. And it was even better. More people came and more program. So then we had the next one here in Albuquerque in 1981. And that was a real breakthrough because I had been in contact with the Worshipful Company of Farriers and the Association, and the Association of Britain trying to get some pointers and some help organizationally and philosophically, you know, how to deal with stuff. Well, they're a bunch of straight-laced people and very formal, very rigid in their 
approach and belief. And they were cordial, I guess I could say, and, but didn't give up a thing. Well, when the convention came in February of 81, whether there were seven or nine of them came, the president for that association said his man, the register of the worshipful company sent their man. People from the Irish Horse Board sent their man, the worshipful company sent their people. And they came to spy us out. I finally got them to admit that, that they, they, they came to see what we were up to. And it just, it just melted together like butter. It was a beautiful thing, really. And uh, they invited me to go to their meeting the next year, which I did, and invited them to come back again the following year to Houston. Uh, Jackson, what they did. It just was the beginning of a very, obviously, very fruitful relationship. But those were the years that it just finally, the, the blinders fell off and it just started to grow like top like weeds. You mentioned Bill Pay and people back in Wisconsin will remember him as Centaur Forge. And who were some of the other vendors at the, those early conventions? Joe Brandau from Pennsylvania. Um, Palmer Wilson from Georgia, can't call his name, the guy from Diamond, Lee Green, Jay Sharp. It was guys, I can't think of any more right now, just, you know Clovis Earls, do you ever hear that name? No, I've heard the name. He, well, he's another story altogether. But those were the main, Bill was the main guy because he, you know, he always had a dog and pony show, he, he brought more than everybody else. He was the only, body, only guy that had something stolen from him. <laughs> there at Lakewood, somebody stole a pair of nippers, a G nipper, which at that time was probably a hundred bucks worth, you know, or maybe a little bit less. Unbelievable. You know, even then you couldn't trust people. <laughs> yeah. So the, was that then a, a spark for a lot of the states to, to have their own associations? Um, I, I pushed that pretty hard because I knew we couldn't, as a national association, you couldn't hand feed all of these people. They're just fiscally impossible to do. So I was pushing the formation of the state associations pretty hard. And it worked. As long as they stayed away from making shoes and shoeing horses. Started it out as a social thing. Completely devoid of anything except getting to know each other and learning that you're a nice guy after all. I'm a nice guy after all. I'm not after your business. You're not after my business. You know, taking all the competitiveness out of it. And it started on that basis. And the state association started pretty much on that. Because the minute you put two horses or three together, you got three enemies, you know, back then, because mm -hmm. none would be willing to agree with the other one on, on horseshoeing things. I don't drink beer, but they could drink a beer, they could eat a hamburger, and life was nice, you know. Once you get past that personal thing, uh, where it comes to money or job, then they'd forget about those things and relate socially, and it began to overflow that. They don't even—they weren't even aware of it. I don't think a lot of them. Yeah, they—they they weren't aware of what what was actually going on with that. Yeah, the dynamic was changing, it was so fluid and and so indistinct that they didn't even realize they were being brought into the swim of things. You know, and of course, too, there's nothing more attractive to Orsher than be asked a question. You know, you're gonna get, you're gonna get, fifty-five gallon drum dumped on you. Of all he knows, he, so you feed his ego a little bit. Say, well, come give us a talk. Come talk to us about so and so making a hammer handle or putting a hammer in the hand, a hammer handle in the head, or you know, just anything. I'm important. I feel good. They like me. You know. Yeah. That was after we got the first ice melted. That was the next step. Involve those people. And it, again, worked like a charm. So you're making this financial investment, your time investment. You, you've had a few conventions. Uh, what was your practice like? What, what, you know, what were you doing with horses at that point? Working my butt off. <laughs> I, I have to admit, uh, sadly, I've neglected my family and I neglected my wife. I end up in divorce. And, but... I, got about, I don't have that wife back, I got a better wife, but uh, my family, are, we're all together, you know. But it was a pretty expensive thing, not just money-wise, but emotionally as, as well. You just do what you can. 
Well, that, that's not an uncommon thing for a lot of horseshoers that, you know, you get so invested in the time and yeah. uh, trying, you know, to support a family in the horseshoeing if it's not run like a business can can take you away from, from your family and ultimately yeah. end a lot of marriages. You know, we, we've all got time for the things we really want to do. I mean, it's... it's it, Incontrovertible. That's the truth. We say, well, I don't have time to do that. I don't have time to do that. I don't have time to do that. It's because we don't want to bad enough. It's when we decide, I'm going to do that, no matter what it costs, that we get something done, you know. But at the expense that we have to pay for that indulgence. <laughs> and we don't want, many of us don't want to pay that price. So um, as development continues, more conventions, the word spreads, the state associations emerge. Uh, what point did certification start? It started in 1977 in Fresno. That was one of the burning questions. I was hot at that time, feeling that horseshoers should be educated and licensed to prove that they were educated. And the state of New Mexico actually asked us to, over, to undertake the testing of the racetrack shoers at the time in 1974. Of course, we couldn't because we didn't have the wherewithal, the money, or the people to do it. But it was, again, the wrong end of it. It was, it was the people who were doing the work that were incapable of doing the work, or not should say incapable, but not doing it at a professional standard, that, uh, that they just went out from under the, under the load of doing it. But I had proposed that horseshoes be licensed back then, again, to separate the wheat from the chaff. And it, of course, went right up the nose of most of the old timers who thought, well, you know, I don't need anybody told me what to do. I know how to shoot horses. I don't need that crap, you know. Completely missing the point of it all. But it was enough to inflame, if you will, uh, enough people that, that uh, said, well, let's thrash it out at, at the convention and so I said, okay, well, let's, let's have a debate, only not a, this kind of debate, but present the point, present the point, and then discuss the point. Somebody talked for licensing, somebody talked for certification, and then cross-pollinate. And uh, it was hard to find somebody to talk about licensing, about that side of the approach. And it, anyway, it had a lot to do with the person, the personality of the people, the people that did the job. I maybe not have been able to do a better job, but I was too marked, I was too biased to, to step in. I didn't want to, you know, rupture any of the other relationships by doing it, but it was a mistake, political mistake. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about the state associations. In, in order to encourage states to organize, I said, if you organize and if you play the game straight, New legislative officers, and, and according to the legal and the ethical way of doing things, then the president of your state association is to sit on the board of the AFA and be part of the decision management. Hmm, good idea, they said. Good idea. Free trip to the convention, you know, a little bit of a little bit of boys. Uh, I could be somebody, and they, they went for it like a turkey taking a June bug. So <laughs> it worked pretty good until as long as only 10 or 12, but by the time we got 60 of the buckets, it turned into a bloody dogfight. Again, a mistake on my part, should never have done that. But it, it encouraged and, and succeeded in getting participation in the management association, which before and, and was, was my association doing things my way. In fact, people used to call it Walt Taylor's thing, you know, it wasn't the AFA, it was Walt Taylor's thing. He called me the Emperor of Albuquerque. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. It, it worked anyway, but that was the trade-off that I was that I was politically dealing with. You know, share the load, encourage people to join in. That reminded me when I was working with guys in the third world, illiterate, ignorant, completely without a clue as to what life is about except survival from today till tomorrow. Not next week, not next year, not 20 years, not, but from today till tomorrow. You know, completely inept at the work. They can't think, they can't talk, or can't express themselves, I should say. But you know, if you, if you don't say, hey man, good job, good. Pretty soon I'm gonna say, well, up yours, you know, I'm going to not listen to you anymore, not do your work anymore. So you encourage them and say, hey, great, good. 
then they believe you. So now you got this guy butchering something, and he's, oh man, look how good I'm doing, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're between the devil and the deep blue sea all the yeah. time, and, and trying to pick, <laughs> pick that line between the, compete, the competing factions or the competitive impulses to keep things on a keel so that they'll work a little bit. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. Well, how, how did you get involved with going to the third world? Well, when the AFA, after, what would it have been about? Well, after Albuquerque in 81, when, when the foreigners came, and they were just Scots and, and English and Welsh. Next year, a few Fro French people came. Next year, after a couple of Germans came, and pretty soon you get people from other countries coming. And their question of me always, well, why can't we have something like this where I live? Why don't you help us get started? So I went to Edward Martin and Dr. He was the president of the British Association at the time, and Dr. Kita, president of the Japan Association at the time, I said, why don't we think about a World Affairs Association that would give us a closer bond to the countries in those areas of the world. He said, okay. So we did. So we started the World Affairs Association. And um, we had a vice president, what we called the uh, Oceana area of Australia, New Zealand. It never went anywhere. They were too much like the Brits in the sense that we know it all already, so we don't need you type of thing. One in Asia, one in Britain, and one in America. Just, just trying to bring people in and tie them together, uh, educational sharing, um, goods and services, that kind of stuff. Mostly to encourage them to develop their own infrastructure and have their own setups. In fact, that's where the European Association comes, they call it the European Federation of Ferrier Associations, you, you know about mm -hmm. that. We had a meeting in Britain in 1983, invited them in Mustad and the World Affairs Association sponsored the meeting and we had people there from 15 countries. Anyway, that was the genesis of the EFFA to get that going for all of Europe. And it worked for a while in uh, Mexico and it worked to a lesser extent in uh, the Caribbean and somewhat in, in Japan, Korea, China, that area. but bears are just too big and too great. The cost to break them down was so much we just couldn't, couldn't do it. Anyway, since we couldn't do it organizationally, uh, Tina, my wife, Tina McGregor, is a vet. She was at the Royal Dick School of Veterinary Studies in Edinburgh when I married her, met her and married her. She was working on a grant from the International League for the Protection of Horses, a British charity, a very wealthy British charity. They paid her they paid the university salary for her, and her work was as a clinician diagnostician, as well as to represent this IOPH in their welfare work around the world. So we uh, went to Schemen and put together a program, we called it Working Together for Equines, and it was um, a proposal to take farrier training to the third world under the auspices of the World Farriers Association, the International League of Protection of Horses in the University of Edinburgh. So we, we had that three, and we got money from different sources, and then we started training programs for farriers and veterinarians and horse users in different countries. And the IOPH at that time had a, they called it a, well, they had a little clinic in a little town of Agadir, way down on the south end of Morocco, where they had a, a local vet, poor vet, but the best they had. We used that as our first trial to have a fair training course in Agadira that, that the ILPH and the University of Edinburgh and the World Affairs Association paid for. And it went down a tree. It just was incredible. So we used that as a model. We worked all over Africa and all over the Middle East and Mexico and the Caribbean. What was the state of horseshoeing in a lot of those areas before you got there? Have you not seen our videos? No, no, I haven't. I didn't bring anything with me, but let me send you some of those okay. things. It's videos that we took of, of farriers in Morocco and in Jordan and in Turkey and in India and 
Mexico and the Caribbean and just, you just can't believe it. You just can't believe it. But the good news is, we, we trained probably, what, what, excuse me, what we did, we, we set up a, a basic curriculum of both fairy and, and veterinary sciences as much as they needed to, to do. But then we, we worked with them for a month, and then we'd go away for two months. Then we'd go back and spend another month with them, and then we'd go away and work someplace else in between. Incredible development. You just can't imagine how some of those people bloomed to the point that in Guatemala and in Honduras and Mexico, in Jamaica, um, South Africa, Morocco, Tunisia, Turkey, some of our students are still fairs there or are teaching now. The guys in Guatemala and Mexico are, are, they've got a whole training program of their own based on our, on our initial work. We got started in Algeria, but it was just before the coup d'etat they had. In fact, we were there when that happened. <laughs> but uh, that, that program didn't make it when they went back to the fundamentalist stuff. It's yeah, most the most enlightening, the most uh, well, it's the greatest experience I've ever had. <laughs> Americans don't realize we just are too fat, dumb, and happy to realize how good we got it. You think of what those people have and what they get by with, and God, it's just it's stunning, just stunning. But we've had. We've had people from Morocco come to the convention. We've had people from Mexico come to the convention. We've had people from uh, Jordan. And it's just, it's just, well, it's kind of like watching your family grow, you know, and seeing a success after success after success. But that's past. Times change. Money comes and politics, world politics change. Threats change. We're not doing that anymore. The, the state of Horseshoe, and we, we helped, I helped the, with money, getting a horseshoe-making factory started in Mexico. And it's still working, still selling shoes. But, of course, Mustad's in there now, and all the big companies run in there and grab the cream, but what a difference in that, in that country in terms just the, of the source of tools and equipment. So there's two or three guys now teaching horseshoe down there, and they're doing a good job of it within their capability area, their limits, I should say. But it's, you know, it's just dark ages compared to then, compared to now. Tremendous, tremendous thing. We, we talked earlier about education. And, uh, you know, later in your career, you became more of an advocate of, of licensing and being more vocal with, with participation and trying to raise awareness in the American Horse Council. Mm-hmm. I guess, what was the driving factor for that? What, what, you know, was this just a continuation of what you wanted to do, or no? That was an epiphany. I started. I started thinking about licensing in 1969, 1971, 1977, and until 1990, 20, 25, 30 years, beat my head against the wall of trying to convince farriers that they needed more than they got. I finally. I mean, I'm, I, I admit I'm dumb. I'm stupid. It took me that long to realize it ain't going to change from the inside. You're not going to change these knuckleheads. They're not going to. They're not going to put any more burden on themselves. They're not going to accept that. So the epiphany was: you go around and you put put the heat on their customer, their client. You educate the the owner, the horse owning public, that they're not getting treated right. There's no recourse for malfeasance. There's no, there's no standard of service that they get. They get nothing. They get to pay the bill and they get what they get. So then my, my, my epiphany was we educate the public. We make the pressure for betterment come from the public. Said to the fairy, how do you, how do you claim to be able to do this? What have you got to prove that you can do this? Uh, uh, I can't, except I'm telling you. But that didn't work. In my view, that didn't work. Well, I bit off more than I could chew. I spent myself poor on the AFA, and I wasn't going to do it again. I'm not going to lose another family, another what little I got, trying to 
try to push that aspect. So I, I just said, to hell with it. I've done enough. <laughs> but that's the answer to it, in my view. A law is passed. Uh, agreement is made. Fair is become, going to become a profession. It's going to be professionally educated, professionally tested, professionally credentialed, professionally enforced. A license, if you will, or a certificate, whatever, not registered. And it isn't going to hurt one guy that's shooting a horse today because you say, everybody that's shooting today, their grandfather. You're not going to go back and step on them, throw them out. See? Work it till you die. What have you got? From 20 years old to 70 years old. But beyond a certain date, let's say 2050, nobody's going to shoe a horse unless they have a credential that says, I've been educated and trained to do this job right. Who's going to say what's right? Well, we are. The trade is our trade. We're going to take our best people, top to bottom. Who, who, who are the best fairies of God? I don't know who they are. I can name a lot of them that are really good. You're going to take those people. You're going to take business people. You're going to take educators. You're going to take artists. You're going to take everybody that's got a dog in a fight, and you're going to throw them in a room, and they're going to work out the ground rules. This is what it takes to be a farrier. So many hours of education, so many hours of physical training, so many hours of foreign not languages or, you know, science and build a well-rounded professional person. They go get the practical training. They take a test that says, I can do all these things. I got a proof of it here. It's a certificate, a license, if you want to call it that, that says I can do this. And nobody else can. And that's exactly what's happened in Britain. Well, they're not that far along yet. But unless you're registered, you don't do it. Mm -hmm. The guy, when they passed that law in 1974, he exempted everybody that practiced. His grandfather did. We're not going to bother you. But anybody knew you're going to pay the price. You're going to get the job. You're going to get the piece of paper that says you are a professional farrier. World is yours. And that's what's about to happen here, in my view. So somebody who's listening, I, I think, you know, grandfathered in is one thing. There's still some people, even with that, would be against it. What What do you think is the best argument to change those minds? After 50 years, forget them. They're not that important in the big scheme. You like it, you don't like it, tough. You live out your life and that's the way it's going to be. You do what you want, you're doing it now to keep doing it, and when you're gone, the one can do that for you. Somebody's gotta be God. Somebody's gotta be God. You, you're never, you're never gonna get consensus. I, I say I've tried for 50 years, and maybe of course, maybe my trying is, is the pound to help that sinks the boat. Maybe somebody else can do it, but obviously I can't. Maybe I've driven too many stakes in too many years, I don't know. <laughs> But, you know, if you say somebody, you know, it's got to be arbitrary, finally, said, this is going to be the law as of a certain day, period. No discussion, no argument. This is going to be it. And when that happens, everybody will, you know, like Y2K, oh, what's going to happen? <laughs> Life will go on. <clears throat> Things will keep track. And in five years, nobody will remember. Ten years for sure, it's forgotten. This is the way we do business. Accepted and gone. That's what the veterinarians have done. It works. It's what dentists do. It works. AFA becomes the American Bar Association, the big daddy. The AAPF or the BWFA. They're the AAEP level. You got the, you got the roof up here and you got these other organizations in there that do different things. Ethics legal, practice tip, you know, the whole thing, the contests, the conventions, all that falls below the roof. Whether it's called the AFA or called Moses, it doesn't matter what you call this, but there's got to be that umbrella association that, that has the responsibility for everything, and then it parcels out the, the pieces that the people are going to do. Which reminds me of something I want to ask you. Sure. I'm convinced that having three associations or two and a half associations in the United States is foolish. 
it's it's it serves no good except ego. Okay, so for the last question I have, you, you just said you're 86. We, going back to the late 40s when you were first working, you look back over your career, what was the most important lesson you learned? The most important lesson that you learned? <laughs> I should have started sooner and worked harder. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I'm not, I'm not an easy guy. I'm not patient. And I'm, I'm a bit hard on people. And I wish I could have been easier in those areas, my family included. But um, I think I've learned to be kinder and gentler, as George Bush said. <laughs> I may think like I always did, but I don't quite talk and act like I maybe did before. Uh, the best decision ever made though was to continue, keep going. And there was a lot of, I mean, with the AFA and, and this whole pursuit of whatever it is, perfection or whatever, there was a lot of temptation not to, mm -hmm. but I'm glad it did. <laughs> I'm, I think it's been good. I don't, I don't feel like I need anybody's blessing to validate my life. I don't think I need to prove anything to anybody, but it had to be done, and I'm glad I got to do it. I'd like to thank Walt Taylor for joining us for this podcast, and I'd also like to thank SmartPak for sponsoring it. Thank you to each of you for listening. I hope you'll join us for our next episode, and until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>